Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg P&L Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. The intersection of business and government. Who but Jim Milstein, the co-founder, the founder rather, and the CEO of Milstein and Company, also former chief restructuring officer at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Who better but Jim Milstein to have on and tell us this intersection? Uh, it can, in some cases, be looked at as a collision. You don't know, but Jim, thanks very much for being here. My pleasure. Uh, give people just a little bit, a quick rundown. I said chief restructuring officer at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. That's a fancy title for you were working on AIG right yeah you. no I had I, I kind of had the the big messes the big the financial crisis I was gonna get the, the under your ages at the advisory firm uh, clients include Puerto Rico we're gonna get to that Cyprus Greece US Airways acquisition of American uh, Airlines uh, I don't know how many chapter 11s you've worked on I mean it's too many it, too, too, <laughs> too many. many all right so where do you want to start you want to start with with uh, with Puerto Rico they they bought a little bit of time but they're they're not paying their debts is there a way out here yeah I mean the Congress um, at the urging of the last administration passed a law that uh, really gives a framework for recreating uh, fiscal sanity and stability and also giving them a bankruptcy-like process to restructure the debt. And so, you know, this is a, this, these the Commonwealth got, um, you know, uh, they went off track uh, fiscally and economically. And um, that's a diplomatic uh, way to, well, I mean, you know, there, there are many hands in, uh, in this mess. Uh, You know, the federal government played, Puerto Rico played an important role in the strategic defense of the United States during the Cold War, given its proximity to Cuba. There were, Correct. you know, many military bases and lots of employment on the island in the 50s. Well, the ECAS, the naval base uh, in yeah, the eastern part. Yeah, but there was a big Air Force base on yes. the west. There was a big naval base in the south. And there was lots of employment and economic activity associated with that. Obviously, the peace dividend uh, was not invested in Puerto Rico. Uh, the bases first to close were the bases in Puerto Rico. Is, is there a clock ticking with Puerto Rico? Because I note that the unemployment rate is over 12 yeah, this is the thing that we, you know, talk to the governor about and talk to the creditors about, which is at the end of the day, you know, the ability to provide basic services to uh, your people and the ability to pay your debts or some portion of your debts depends on the strength or weakness of the economy. And so the economy is the thing that's been really weak for the last really 15 years. And so turning the economy around is really the 
first business of both the politicians and the and the creditors. Well, then you talk about the economy and that confluence of businesses and, and creditors and government officials. Uh, I'm sure you've been watching the news that uh, President Trump met earlier today with a group of business leaders, his business council, uh, put together by Stephen Schwartzman of um, uh, Black uh, Blackstone. Is there a uh, is there something that you probably know many of the people on this council? What What can we take away from this? Well, I haven't seen any reports of, uh, of you know, statements coming out of it. But, you know, the, the Trump agenda is a, in a sense, is a radical refashioning of America's place in the world economy if, if it's fulfilled. Uh, whether it's a destination cash flow-based tax, a 20% tax on import, or tariffs, new tariffs back on Chinese goods, or uh, with Mexico and Canada, you know, the emphasis on a kind of a mercantilist approach to uh, U.S. trade and economic policy would be a radical departure from what we've done in the post-war world, post-war era. Um, and so, you know, I think the guys in the room uh, are probably telling him, are reacting to that, because I think if the full agenda is implemented, uh, we're talking about real economic dislocation in the United States. It may be for the good. I don't think so. Um, but uh, it'll have huge transformation costs uh, uh, on the American economy. But you're, but you're confident that the people in the room that he has assembled, and they're not just the ones that he met today, but I mean, he's met with the pharmaceutical industry and the energy industry, uh, that they are really going to give him some unvarnished uh, responses and, and, and thoughts. Yeah. And, and, and look, we have three branches of government and most of what uh, the president is uh, in his broader, more aggressive, ambitious agenda want to achieve is stuff that's going to require legislation. And, you know, we all have witnessed how hard it is to get anything passed in Congress. Uh, so, you know, while there's there may be great excitement in some quarters for a aggressive implementation of the Trump agenda, I think we're going to see the rollout and its implementation both changed as it goes through Congress and it's going to take a lot longer. There is something called the Order Liquidation Authority. The Orderly Liquidation Authority. Yes. yes. Uh, you know about this because you helped too. put it together, the living will for major financial institutions. Uh, what's your take on how well it has performed so far? Well, thankfully, we haven't had to employ it. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, the last eight years or six years since the passage of Dodd-Frank and the implementation of the regulations under it, you know, have resulted in a much better capitalized, less levered, more resilient set of financial institutions. And uh, we've had a, you know, relatively benign recovery with uh, lots of uh, stimulus from the Federal Reserve, uh, not so much from Congress. And as a result, the financial system, you know, has had an opportunity to heal. And so we haven't had to test the living wills or the orderly liquidation authority. Well, but thanks for uh, for putting it in place in, in case we need it. We look forward to having you in the future. Uh, Jim not, Milstein, do not on the orderly liquidation authority. No. All right. Well, I, I'm sure there'll be something else by yeah. then. Uh, Jim Milstein, he is the CEO and the founder of Milstein & Company.
As we can see from the imminent Snap IPO, online media is all the rage, but nailing down exactly what trends are hot is tough. But with us to give us some insight is Ross Levinson, executive chairman of Mundo Media and former Yahoo interim chief executive officer. Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I first just want to start with when people talk about the online trends, uh, they talk about how Snap is the newest thing. How quickly uh, are these trends changing? And what do you think is the number one thing that media companies should be aware of that's trending now? Uh, great question. I think the, the most important thing now for media companies is, is to really figure out their distribution strategy. I think we, we've seen, you know, the, the, the old ecosystem of distribution just get obliterated over the last two years. Uh, you, you now have companies like Netflix which is approaching 100 million worldwide uh, users uh, per month. Uh, and if you looked at them as a cable operator, they'd be the largest cable operator in the world by, by a factor of two and a half. So, uh, and that's just one element of the changing landscape. You also have, obviously, we talked about Snap for a second here at the, at the top of this discussion, uh, reaching you know, a huge audience that's growing uh, each month, and and now you add in Facebook and Amazon, all new entrants. If you were to look at a chart today of the largest media companies in the world, you know, 15 years ago it would have looked like Time Warner, Disney, uh, NBC, etc. Today it looks like Google, Amazon at the very top, just in terms of gross revenue and, and reach. So the entire distribution landscape is changing. The good news for media companies, in my opinion, was that all of these platforms need premium content. You know, there's obviously been a tremendous amount of noise about fake news as of late. But what these platforms all need to generate uh, increasing revenues, growing revenues, is premium content. Well, uh, Ross Levinson, I was just going to try to compress your, you know, your career into less than 30 seconds, which I got to say is very difficult because it includes Sportsline as well as CBS, News Corp and a variety of other ventures, plus uh, your time at, at Yahoo. Uh, can you single out for us maybe what is the most uh, piece of your own personal history that is connected with what you're trying to accomplish now so people understand this idea of data-driven mobile marketing? What is it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. My career has re really been, uh, I've had, I like to think of it as, as two careers. My, the first half of my career was really in traditional media. I worked at, I worked at uh, HBO for seven years and, and worked on, uh, uh, on promoting a variety of, of sporting events um, early in my career. I also worked at Saatchi and Saatchi, which is a big ad, ad agency. And then I sort of found the religion of the Internet in 1994 and the, back, the next half of my career has all been in, in, in sort of the confluence of the convergence of, of old media and new media. Now there's just media. So what, what's happened over the last year or two, I think aggressively, has been the changing way that marketers reach uh, consumers. And, and the interesting thing, one of the reasons I got involved with Mundo Media is, you know, mobile is the fastest growing platform or ecosystem there is in the world, you know, by 2020, some estimates uh, say every consumer on earth will have four connected devices. So if you think about that, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty of, overwhelming. Uh, 
Right. So, so how do you re, you know, and, and you can't do the same thing on a, on a small screen that you can do on a television or even on a laptop or a desktop computer. So the, the idea that you can micro-target consumers with the right messages, whether that be content or, in Mundo's case, advertising, uh, that that's first and foremost, I, I think, uh, going to be a big trend going forward. It already well, is. That's why fa- Facebook's making so much money. Talking about making money or not making money, I mean, Snap filed its uh, registration documents for its initial yeah. public offering, and people are talking right. about the fact that uh, that they that their cost of providing the service is outweighing their revenues. How uh, likely do you think it is for them to ramp up their profitability in short order, based on your understanding of? advertisers' appetite? Sure. Well, advertisers are, are flocking to Snap uh, right now. It, it is a place, you know, it, it certainly caught the, the wave of, of attention of consumers, certainly younger consumers. But if you watch what they're doing with content, you know, they are morphing themselves into a media company very quickly and rapidly. You know, they have a, they have a tremendous amount of premium content in, in, uh, on their platform, everyone from the NFL to you know, other end of the spectrum, the Daily Mail and everyone in between. So, you know, I, th- I think they're going to be a company that isn't as focused on profitability over the first few years, nor do they have to be, in my opinion. Uh, I think it's all about growth. As You know, that said, it's a double-edged sword because, as we've seen with Twitter, you know, once the consumer adoption starts to slow a little bit, that's when people start focusing on are they profitable and, and how much revenue they're getting per, per customer. So, that's, that'll be something to watch down the line. But look, I think they, 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 it's going to be a really exciting IPO. Uh, it, it's, it's really a telling sign that they chose the New York Stock Exchange over the NASDAQ. I think, you know, why that, is that? Is a, uh, well, I think it's a huge win for the NYSE. Uh, they, they've quietly, from you know, what I know, been aggressive in, in courting, uh, you know, high tech or tech companies. You know, I think it's, there, there is a market difference, and you guys cover this all day long between the two exchanges. From the outside, it looks the same, but if you look at the types of companies that are listed, um, the NYSE is, is, is so much bigger. But it's a telling sign that they chose it after the you know, what happened with Facebook uh, on the NASDAQ. So I think it's a huge win for, for them. And, and you know, you've, uh, you've got some other big names potentially coming out over the next 24 months. Who do you think is going to be the next IPO after uh, well, Snap? You know, the, 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 Uber? Uh, no, I don't think Uber will go this year. I, I, it was, I, I thought it was going to be Spotify, but we, we read yesterday or the day before that they've, they've put that on, or I think it was yesterday, they've put that on hold for right. a little bit while, while they renegotiate. Quick, uh, give, you, give you 20 yeah. seconds, uh, 10 seconds. Yeah. Who should be afraid of this new micro-targeting? No one. Uh, it, it's, the, it's the best thing there is for marketers and, and for consumers, and, and that's why I'm excited about Mundo, because they, they really have the technology and the, and the data to, to deliver the right message in a performance way, not where you're buying big CPM advertising, but you're only paying for, for what is delivered. And right, but someone's going to get hurt because someone is now offering advertising that's not based on that. Well, the, the big, broad, you know, you have to put it into a couple of buckets. Yeah. If you've got scale and size, you, you will adopt this technology and you, and you will start micro-targeting. If you do, the people who really get hurt, um, I think, over the next 24 months are people who don't have size or data, and they're dependent on, on just ad networks or, or programmatic exchanges. Thanks very much. Ross Levinson, Executive Chairman, Mundo Media.
PL is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. I want to bring in Peter Duga, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and current Managing Director at FIS's Center of Regulatory Intelligence, FIS's uh, electronic payments uh, processor, among other uh, among other things. Peter, I, I want to just get your take on, from your perspective, what are the implications from a risk management standpoint, from a security standpoint and compliance of this potential repeal? Well, good morning. Uh, well, I'd like to start with, you know, looking at the overall discussion and debate in Washington around the Dodd-Frank Act. If you look at it, really the discussion is not necessarily around a direct repeal, which would be hard, almost impossible to do with 60 votes needed in the U.S. Senate. So what we're really looking at is targeted regulatory relief, um, where you're going to see specific provisions agreed upon, where are going to provide some relief. Uh, and what we would look to is the House Financial Choice Act as the model or the base bill for which we'll kind of see what will be adjusted or agreed to. So things included in there which are going to modify and change the structure of the CFPB from a single leader into a multi-member commission, put the CFPB under appropriations process. Um, also, there's a lot of discussion around repealing the Boca Rule, repealing Durbin Amendment, and fiduciary rule. So obviously, under those specific provisions, there'll be some significant changes to banks and financial institutions under provisions within the Act. Can you explain a little bit more, Peter, about the uh, maybe the perspective that you see developing from Gary Cohn, who is the director of the National Economic Council, but also, you know, you got the House, the, you know, the Republicans on the House Financial Services Committee, Jeb Henserling. I mean, these are people that, for example, the fiduciary rule, um, maybe that's a regulatory relief because you could also apply that, what, to SIFIs, right, the uh, systemically important financial financial institutions, you know, tell them, don't uh, designate non-bank financial firms as SIFIs. Correct. So you look at it from two perspectives. Really, Gary Cohn's probably uh, a leading voice in the administration right now, really bringing the perspective of actually working in a bank and financial institution and understanding the specifics on how the rules and the Dodd-Frank specifically impact a bank versus the narrative or general broad discussions about the policy perspectives in Washington, where people may lose the level of detail and the exact impact to a bank or a financial institution. So what we're seeing right now is a lot of action. Obviously, there's been executive orders issued. There's been memorandums issued. And even as of last night, we understand that there will be a memo regarding the DOL fiduciary rule, which will look to rescind the rule. 
so the effective date is coming up pretty quickly. The president's uh, memo actually asked departments and agencies, including the Department of Labor, to postpone the effective dates by 60 days. So we'll look to see uh, whether DOL will actually propose to just extend the provisions by 60 days or whether they'll look to actually propose a complete repeal of the law or the act. Um, so we'll see how, where the devil is in the details of that and how exactly the Department of Labor and the administration will propose exactly amending that. And then if you looked at the House Financial Services Committee, uh, Chairman Henserling is going to propose a new bill, an amended bill. Uh, there was one introduced last year, which passed the committee, but was not considered by the full House. And so we'll see very similar provisions included in that bill uh, that should be introduced within the next six weeks. And then we'll see whether the Senate adopts a similar bill or amends the House Financial Choice Act or decides to move forward with their own bill. From your perspective, what is the main change that could come about as a result of this review of Dodd-Frank within the next few years? I would suggest uh, changes to the Volcker Rule. That's probably been one of the largest complaints uh, is specifically how the Volcker Rule's been implemented, uh, the detail required to comply with the rules, as well as specific provisions that we're looking at regarding the CAPB. Again, as I've talked about, you know, uh, there's been concerns expressed by the industry on not enough guidance provided by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and how they potentially would apply specific provisions, whether it's enforcement actions or regulations that are proposed. In fact, the Senate actually just proposed, I think, this week uh, to reject the upcoming uh, final rule on CFPB prepay cards. You know, I just want to point out that earlier this morning when Gary Cohn, uh, the current economic advisor to President Trump and former COO of Goldman Sachs, was asked by Bloomberg Television's David Weston, what about the Volcker rule? He did not give any particular answer. I mean, it wasn't specific. It was basically, you know, we're looking at everything. We want to just basically make sure that everything functions again. So to your point, Peter, it seems like uh, certainly it is at least of the things that is up for review. Yeah, well, amongst amongst other things. I want to thank you very much, Peter uh, Duga. He is uh, Managing Director of Government Affairs at FIS, uh, and it's a Center of Regulatory Intelligence. That's uh, Fidu- uh, Fidelity National. And here to make us smarter about banks, financial institutions, and potential changes to Dodd-Frank is Allison Williams, Senior Financial Research Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Allison, thank you for being with us. Good morning. Where do you want to start? You want to start about uh, uh, maybe the Department of Labor fiduciary rules? Do you want to talk about uh, uh, VOCA rule? Where's the most important? I mean, they're all important. Well, I think... I think uh, speaking of starting uh, sort of the symbolic start that we got today is Trump signing the executive order um, on Dodd-Frank and fiduciary duty. Uh, Nathan Dean, who's our regulatory expert here in BI, has pointed out that the Dodd-Frank one is really symbolic. It's going to direct Treasury to come up with a plan to roll back um, Dodd-Frank. But by putting it... They're asking for a review, right? Yes. Yeah. And and it's it's the Financial Stability Oversight Council as well as the Order Liquidation Authority. Right. So 
I think I think the important thing is that he, Trump is basically um, putting into motion uh, the review of Dodd Frank. Um, what Nathan would say is it's still going to take a lot of time. Um, with regard to the fiduciary rule, uh, this is something that I think has been widely anticipated. Um, but you know, I think most uh, most managements. Uh, brokers, other participants in the industry will say that, you know, with, with implementation, which was set to start um, shortly, most of the companies have already made moves sort of towards um, implementing that rule. And so even though you might get some relief, um, again, Nathan thinks that we're not going to get full-scale uh, rollback, perhaps just some tweaks. Um, so, so we're yeah, and really that rule, uh, what was expected. Um, so, so the rule specifically affects retirement accounts. It specifically um, focuses brokers on doing what's best for the client. Um, and so, the expectation was that this rule would really lead to sort of an acceleration of some key trends that were in place. So, the shift from active to passive, right. the shift towards cheaper products, um, the shift perhaps more towards these robo advisory type products. So, these are all things that have a lot of different drivers, but perhaps if this rule, um, you know, is tweaked, then you might get like a little bit of relief on those. You know, earlier we were talking to Peter Dugas. He's the uh, former deputy assistant secretary for the Treasury. uh, And he was talking about how the Volcker rule may be the main place where Congress could make a big difference quickly. Uh, Do you agree with that? And do you see uh, the, the likelihood of revoking the Volcker rule, which Overseas proprietary trading uh, as as increasing dramatically in the recent days. I think for the Volcker rule, um, you know, the, the key negative impact of that rule has been on bond market liquidity, and um, that's widely debated. And that's because liquidity is tough to measure. Uh, you know, there's there's different studies you can look at. You can look at how brokers have dramatically reduced their balance sheet. We actually um, had a panel, you know, sort of an informal survey result of market participants, uh, treasurers and the like, and uh, about half of them had said that they felt that uh, Volcker had had um, the more significant impact across a number of regulations on liquidity. And, uh, you know, for me personally, it's talking to bond managers that are in the market every day, um, treasurers that have to think about how they um, fund their companies, talking about that it has had an impact. And so I think that for for those reasons, um, there is support for pulling back the Volcker rule. It, it's obviously a little tricky because, um, you know, no one wants to go back to proprietary trading. And even well, I don't know about that, no one. There might be some people who want to go so back. No one wants to, no one wants no one wants to, to vo- say no that they wants, do. No one wants to vocally support. So that's a, that's an important uh, that nuance that you point yes. out, right? So if you listen to what all the banks have said, you know, no one's going to come out and say, oh, yes, we want to go back to the way things were. What they've said across several managements is, look, we, we don't do proprietary trading. We don't want to go back there. Even Goldman, who made the most money from the business and clearly has had ref- less revenue since, has said, oh, you know, it's not materially important. But what, what they do want is to reduce the regulatory costs associated with it. And so if you think about the cost and the impact that it's had on all the banks, that is really one of the, the main benefits that they can argue um, oh, Similar with the fiduciary rule with Volcker is like, look, there's there's certain aspects. There's this one aspect of Volcker called rent D that creates a lot of paperwork. And so what management will say is like, you know, we don't want to go back to proprietary trading, but if you can loosen up this, you know, you would really reduce the cost and the burden. The issue is if you take that back, then how do you really measure 
um, that they're not proprietary trading. Good point and a good question to keep delving into. Allison Williams, Senior Bank Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking about the possible repeal of the Dodd-Frank Act written in 2010 to prevent another financial crisis. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.